Hello, everyone. My name is Chad, and this is Drinking in Public History. Hi, uh, this is Maria. We are having a few drinks, and we are talking about history, in particular public history. I want to go ahead and introduce today's topic, which if you were listening to our last podcast, we were talking about possibly discussing the flower wars or the flowery wars of what people call Aztec history, what would be more accurately known as Nahuatl history or Aztec Triple Alliance history. So let's get into it. Chad, I, first, before I go into it, I kind of want to ask, what, how did you hear about it? Because I think that's a, an important part of the public history aspect. And two, what about it did you find interesting that you were like, I would like to know more about that? So yeah, so for the listeners, first things first is I've never heard of this before until Maria mentioned it. That's how I heard about it. And I've always been fascinated by Aztec history, what we know is Aztec. I'm fascinated by Aztec history. And part of the reason I'm fascinated by Aztec history is because I know that what we learn actually doesn't represent what there is. So my fascination only leads me to like kind of conjecture. And I've never actually delved into it, partly because I don't know where to start. And partly because one of the other things that I'm reading will have me go farther into that rather than move subject. And if you're a historian, not someone who just kind of likes history, but if you're a historian, you kind of understand you don't want to jump ship on a thing that you're really studying to go study something that you've never really studied before. You're going to go deeper into that thing that you really love. So let's go ahead and dive in because I think this is a perfect, perfect spot to kind of jump into that. Okay, cool. Perfect. Let's go ahead and talk and let's about let everybody know. I know nothing about part of what fascinated me about and why I wanted to hear more is because we have the flower wars versus the wars of the roses. Wars of the roses, as we know from the last episode, highly virgin. The flower wars, I'm like, ooh, really? There's a thing called the There's flower a- war. So that's our uniting theme is flowers and war. <laughs> flowers <laughs> you know? and war. Yeah. Uh, and- and the thing is that that's kind of where the compatibility, the similarity ends. In a very basic nutshell, the flowery wars of the Nahua people, which let's clarify, when we talk about the Aztec, we're actually talking about a triple alliance of Aztecan people, which are the Mexica, Tlaxcalans, and those of Tlaxco. Wait, so, the, so there is no Aztec people? There is no Aztec people as this one tribe or people's of a specific place. They're actually okay. a triple alliance of different This is probably the first time that I feel like I've been completely and utterly betrayed. <laughs> Here's the thing, like, when I say that, I'm including when I found out all the horrible things that the United States did to the American Indian, a uh, more mm-hmm. American indigenous. Right. This is the part where I feel like completely betrayed. I'm like, ah! Because nowhere, literally nowhere, where I've seen Aztec, did it come across as this was an alliance of three different people? So I'm yeah, going to have to deal with my betrayal through you, drink. So you're, I feel like you're going to process it through this entire episode. So let's allow for that. But you're right. What you have in Mesoamerica a lot of times are city-state structures. So when you identify, you identify with your city-state capital, also known as, and I'm going to try to do the best that I can with a lot of these Nahua words, which I kind of feel really bad as somebody who identifies as indigenous, but then I remember I'm detribalized, so I'm like, fuck the Spaniards. Okay, but <laughs> at the same time, remember, I'm white, and I still couldn't pronounce all the English names. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> all right, so the city-states that we're talking about are called Atepetl, and in a lot of Nahua words, you'll see the T-L, and the, the L is silent but sometimes I'll over-accentuate it just so people know they're listening to spelling and they know Spanish. They can more or less try and spell that out. So these city-states were, the Aztec Triple Alliance had formed this agreement with other 
The Flowery Wars are an agreement between the Aztec Triple Alliance city-states and the city-states of the Tlaxcala Puebla Valley, which is located also in central Mexico. It's composed of Tlaxcalans, which I, I mentioned are part of the Triple Alliance, so I'll see about clarity throughout this podcast. Huejotzingo, which is another city-state, and Cholula, which for a lot of people know it as the hot sauce brand, Cholula. So that's where we get it from. And so there were, in these wars, there was a set kind of conventions that they agreed upon ahead of time. The wars would take place ritually throughout a year, whereas whenever you had what they called angry wars, which was something that I discovered the difference of by Frederick Hicks, for those of you who are interested in some of these sources that I'm pulling from, because it's public history, my main source for pulling this information was Wikipedia. There are no historical sites, to my knowledge, the way that we think of Gettysburg as being a place you can go to to learn about this history. There is no place you can go to publicly well, to learn and about this history. That's an interesting concept as well, because Mexico in itself, what would they consider historical spots worth saving? We can look at American history and go, yeah, Gettysburg, which I have issues with. Sorry, that just sent me on a whole other yeah. thought process of like, why do we consider places of mass death worthy of historical remembrance? Yep. So that would even include what we're talking about now. Why do we want to remember this? Now I can understand, let's say, Austria. There's a historical significance to remembering the death there. But is there with Gettysburg? Is there with this area when we know it's ritualized? And just to be clear, you're saying that the flower wars, unlike the Wars of the Roses in England, which was spontaneous, there were reasons for it happening, obviously, but it was like an actual war. People didn't like each other. They had a particular opinion. So they went to war as humans do. because yeah. they did. But you're saying these wars, and I kind of put that in quotes, was more ritualized. That means that there's a particular outcome they already know is going to happen, yes? Yes and no. Okay. So there's an intention behind the wars. There is a reason for having these. That's why it's a ritual. And so I wanted to kind of go back to what we're talking about. I'm pulling from, for this information in particular, from Frederick Hicks, his article, Flowery War in Aztec History. He talks about how there was a difference between the Xochiyayotu, which is how the Nawa pronounce flowery wars, and then which is literally angry war. So there's flower wars, there's angry wars. Flowers are a huge thing in Nawa culture. It's part of the cosmology. There's a god of flowers. There's several gods that are associated with flowers. So flowers have to do with beauty, with art, with goes along with nobility. And the flower wars or the flowery wars are a place for nobility to make a mark, to be able to make a name for themselves as military leaders, which is a huge, huge part of these wars. It's also a place where common folks can rise up through the ranks, through the hierarchy, from being commoners to being capable military fighters, warriors, to leaders, to possibly other things, to marry into nobility. This is what is believed to be part of the function of the Flowery Wars. It's a ritualized war where there's the political military aspect of it. And then there's what a lot of folks who might know anything about this history is the spiritual sacrificial aspect of it. Let me ask you, when we're talking about the Flowery Wars, are we talking about the three tribes that we know as Aztec? Or are we talking about other groups? The Triple Alliance tribes, uh, okay. the Triple Alliance peoples, and the peoples that are associated with the Tlaxcalan Puebloan Valley. So, so it's kind of the, if you will, the overall Aztec yeah. 
and I put this all in quotes, yeah. like Aztec peoples, that's yeah. cruel line against everybody else. Yes, it's the okay. Mexica against people who maybe they're trying to incorporate into becoming vassals of okay. the Mexica of the Aztec Empire. Okay. Or peoples who they never can get under their, into the empire, that they've stalemated and agreed from now on, we're going to try and have these ritual wars so that we can both train our nobility, train our commoners to become great warriors and also have this human sacrifice aspect of it. And I definitely- and I was going to ask, so the human sacrifice that we heard about from Aztec, like that, that's a thing. Yeah, it's okay. a thing. It's definitely a lot more sensationalized, I think, when you apply the European historical lens. I mean, for reasons that conquistadores needed to have it. They needed to paint the peoples of Mesoamerica as these backwards, clearly. Yeah, exactly. It's not right at all, but it definitely is their tool. It's It's a tool of oppression. I mean, the United States did it to their own citizens when we're talking about the Japanese Germans in World War II. I mean, literally demonized. I mean, arguably, this goes on and on forever and ever, even now, with a lot of different places and cultures. So another question that I've been thinking about, and it may just be a tangent and have no relevance to anything that you're talking about. So you're talking about how commoners could rise up, right? Which is really cool. It's an interesting concept because being a historian for Western Europe in particular, right? you don't see a lot of opportunity where that happens. So this is kind of interesting to me that you have these ritualized wars that do allow social movement, because normally you don't see that. When you were talking about marrying into nobility with these three tribes, the Triple Alliance, was there intermarrying? Was that a common thing? Was that not common? You see this throughout all of the Americas, right? You see different tribes and peoples having to marry their daughters or sons, their, their best warriors, especially in Mexica culture. When a warrior was fantastic, you had to recognize that as the Tlatoani, uh, or white Tlatoani, which is how we see Montezuma, right? Montezuma was a white Tlatoani, okay. uh, the main leader of the Mexica people. The more proficient a warrior was, the higher they could rise through the ranks. And as a Tlatoani, you wanted to recognize that that person was exceptional in what they did, because if you didn't, then you would have a potential rival. So it was in your best interest to make sure that those warriors who were exceptional were part of an exceptional class, were given riches, that they were recognized, that they were given titles that were to the level of how good they were in okay. battle. Okay. So the way that you can rise up through the ranks was really important in order to keep the people. Both participants, and I say both because I'm kind of lumping in all the Mexica and lumping in the Tlaxcala, Puebla Valley peoples together as two separate groups, but they would agree to these terms. And I found really interesting I'm going to go back to referencing that a lot of the way that we can read public history as a general public who doesn't have access to a historical site, to statues, to any of this kind of museums or anything like that is Wikipedia and the way yeah, it's kind of described. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there because sure. this is the second time we've talked about Wikipedia. Well, the second time in this episode, but right. also the second time, the second episode where we're yeah. And I really want to let people know Wikipedia is not a reliable source. It is not a source that you can use to quote in a paper. What you should do, and we mentioned this last time, what you should do if you're unfamiliar with this, look to Wikipedia and look at the resources. They either have sources or resources in every Wikipedia article. That's where you can start your actual search because then, again, you're looking at that source's 
resources and sources that they yeah. use and so on and so forth. When it comes to something like this, like what Marie was talking about, and I've run into this myself, if you're on an unfamiliar topic, the best place to go is Wikipedia because that brings together all the sources that you can potentially find and access. Literally, yeah. will give you links to it. So this is yeah. one of the reasons why Maria and I are talking about this. We could both pull up a soapbox and stand on it and talk about primary resources and secondary yeah. resources and those of value. But both of us understand because we are public historians, we understand that there's an access that people need. Yeah. Wikipedia gives people access. It's a good place to start. It's not a good place to quote from. Yeah, you don't want to stay in Wikipedia. You want to be able to like, <laughs> you want to, you know, you want to use it to go down the rabbit hole. Exactly. There's a reason why the resources section exists in each article. You want to make exactly. sure that there's validity to it in that it's been studied more, that there's people who have actually looked into this information a lot more. And that's why I'm saying that. I want people to really realize that Wikipedia is a good source to start, especially with some of these obscure topics. Yeah. If I have the topic, yeah. how do you expand, especially if you're not familiar with the topic? Stand on that. Where do you go? Now, a lot of people are like, well, you can go to Amazon. Yes, mm -hmm. you could. Right. But if you don't know what you're looking for, how do you know that you found it? Exactly. Like, you know, if somebody told you gold is a yellow, shiny rock, you know, there's fool's gold too. So there's a lot of information that you could exactly. look for and it feels right. It sounds right. But if you can't even recognize the skeleton of what you're looking for, you can't really trust that you're going to be finding it. And I just want our listeners to know that we're not using Wikipedia as the only source. We will mention it because we both like it. It's extremely accessible to the public and we're both public historians and that's really what we're all about getting history to the public i'm so glad that you mentioned that and i do want to emphasize that this kind of history the history of the flowery wars of what we know as the aztec empire is not a history you can find just anywhere there are no historical markers that i know of there are no dedicated sites public history is a history that you can find at a place, whether it's an archive, it's a museum, it's a historical site, it's a statue, it's some kind of monument. This is a history that unfortunately has been relegated to hearsay, to the past because of conquest, because of oppression, because of the convenience of rewriting a history of a people's that were not allowed to write the history of themselves when they exactly. were Exactly. Yeah. And I want to say, because I have a feeling some of our listeners might go but there's these pyramids what you're specifically talking about there's no marker for flowery wars yes yeah. there's markers and places and things and museums about aztec in general and I, may mention flowery wars yay and i don't know because i haven't been there once the pandemic's over hopefully i can remedy that but i just wanted to clarify that you're talking specifically about flowery wars because mm -hmm. there are sites for quote-unquote aztecs there are a lot of sites, because that's where yeah. you're saying. Well, there's information, right? There's a reason why we know that there is a triple alliance versus just kind of lumping Aztecs as this whole group of people. And I'm also not saying that there isn't information at a site about the Flowery War. I, I also don't know. I haven't visited every site. I haven't visited any sites, to be honest, specifically having to deal with the Flowery War. What I do know is that this history has been recorded and I'll talk about a couple of folks who recorded it through a friar at the Catholic Church who worked with a captive several years after the Flowery Wars had existed. And they were trying to recall from memory why the wars happened. Crazy. Yeah. So, so talk it's, about like secondhand experience. Yeah. So they may not have been a participant in the wars themselves, but they know the history. It's so it's oh. all history passed down and written. There's also 
a lot of what we know of the Flowery Wars comes from codices, which are these documentations that Nahuatl peoples, Mexica peoples, Tlaxcalans were asked to write, or maybe even forced to write, by the Catholic Church, by friars, by conquistadores. So did they write things themselves? Yeah. The way that Mexica peoples put things down historically on a written form is very unique to them. Most people akin it to Egyptian hieroglyphics. It's okay, also, okay. Mayans also have the same way of recording history, at least at that time period, in that same way. Oral history, even to this day, in a lot of Mesoamerican descended peoples, is the way that you pass down information. It's the way that you pass down knowledge. It's highly valued. It's highly coveted. It's well, how I we understand the world. That's classic throughout world history. A lot of what we know historically does rely on the fact that people at the time were recording it when they finally were recording it into some written form, whether it's through pictures or through writing, they're recording it because they've heard the stories that maybe they were there at some point where they were very young or they were told the story over and over again. A lot of memory for some folks who might be interested in memory and history can be pulled by smells. So there's the association. So when you have things like the flowery war, the flowers are very fragrant. There's also that. So <laughs> I'm not saying that in the flowery wars, they fought with a lot of flowers, but when you have flowers being a huge part of your culture that you have identifying, Sempasuchil, which we know as marigold, it's the flower that you normally see at Dia de Muertos or Day of the Dead ceremonies. When you see the altars, the orange flower, it has a specific smell. So, you know, when you smell that and you think of maybe the specific day or maybe it's a smell associated with a loved person, it'll evoke different memories. It'll evoke different, it'll put you in a place and a time where it's kind of inaccessible to anybody else. And so that's what makes oral history both fascinating and fragile as a method of recanting history, because it is very dependent. That's a whole aspect of the flowery wars I didn't even think about. So like, I'm just pretending. That puts a whole other context onto the the flowery wars. I keep interrupting, right? It's okay. And I'm going to repeat this because it bears repeating, because I'm sure I'm going to get historians who are like, that has nothing to do with olfactory memory. But (laughs) It's not that. Flowers in Nahuatl culture, flowers in the Aztec empire, flowers in Mesoamerican culture have a very specific function. And so to call these the flowery wars does have evocation of what do flowers mean? What does Xochitl mean in Nahuatl culture? It's associated with beauty. It's associated with art. It's associated with the structures of these more fanciful things. It's a war that is actually more structured. It's more designed for a specific purpose. It's not these angry wars as... An angry war would be what we would know, and I say we as like the general public would know it. So an angry war would be an unexpected armed conflict, whereas the flowery wars would be an expected ritualized conflict. Very much, yeah. So we have these agreements. They're going to meet a specific place at a specific time. And Hicks, in his article, actually talks about how these places are sacred places. The ground that they're fighting on is sacred as well because it's agreed upon. Okay, here it is. These places became sacred sites and were called Wahitali or Yaotali. And Yaotali, Yao is from the word Yotl. So there's a specific function. There's a site that specifically functions for flowery wars. Again, this is from the Wikipedia page. I keep referring back to it because as Chad said, there are no solid places that the public can go to. You can definitely read books on the codices, and that is in itself a form of public history, but the codices are inaccessible to the public because 
they're so old, because they require special care, they're not going to be accessible to the public. So we're looking right. at the public history aspect of this. And so one of the things that I want people to realize is that an archives is a form of public history. And when you go to the archives, not everything is necessarily accessible just because yeah. it's archived there doesn't necessarily mean that you can read it or that you can access it. Some things you can, other things not. And this may actually be because of what it's written on, how it's written, what it's written with, like what mm -hmm. kind of print they were using, these codices or the material that it was written on. And mm -hmm. I think I've already said that, but I want to be clear. Those things, if you don't keep them, you can't preserve them. So you can't keep pulling them out. Some of these things yeah. have very specific ways in which you can preserve them. And yeah. so in order for you to be able to pull them out and actually study them and look at them, it needs to be limited. Just because it's in an archive doesn't necessarily mean it's accessible. It means that it's archived there, yeah. stays there, it exists, but it may not be accessible to one general public or two, even research. And yep. Very specific research that requires specific documentation. And a lot of research that's been done on different parts of Nawa, Aztec, Triple Alliance history has been done because the CODIS was written, transcribed, a friar then took that information or somebody who's related, like a conquistador, took that information, retranslated, kind of what we see with the Bible. You know, we have the Greek Bible. It is in its form and in its wording, and then it gets translated and then it's retranslated. And that translation gets kind of reworded. This is what we're seeing with this particular history. You have the codices, and then you have the people who interpret the codices, and they're going to leave things out and they're going to reinterpret things even if they're directly told by the people who experience them or have heard this history over and over again. I'm going to use actually a Nawa word to illustrate as well. Just to drive the point, there's a word, it's called apapachar. Apapachar is a Nawa word, but you'll hear Spanish speakers use it all the time. Me apapachas, por favor apapachame, lo vas apapachar. It's just very widely used. The thing about that word in specific and what I think is kind of super interesting to how we're talking about this is that in Spanish, the way it's translated, its definition is to, it's to spoil, to love, to caress, to care for in this care bear hug kind of way. Can I uh, find a boyfriend who does that? <laughs> Let's just put it out there. Uh, but in Nahuatl, almost the literal translation is to hold with your whole heart. So when you talk about a papa oh, somebody, you're actually talking- Someone who's drunk and doesn't have emotions typically. <laughs> oh my God. So when you say, like, if I were to tell you, Chad, te voy a apapachar, what I'm saying is that I'm going to hold you with my whole heart. You're going to feel that love. And that is an untranslatable word. It doesn't have a direct translation. Its literal translation doesn't sound like it would make sense, I think, to a lot of people who might first hear it. What does that mean? But right. you have to go beyond that literal translation to really imagine that. And so a lot of these codices, a lot of this history is very similar. It makes sense to the people who are going through it, who are living through that time. And then they get retranslated by folks who have a European lens, who have a vested interest in making sure that they are translating this history in a way that reflects them and what they are doing in this continent. And this is what yeah. I want people to realize, especially, especially white people. What I want people to understand is that when we talk about colonialism, what we mean is exactly this, that we're coming in like, and I say we as in like white people. White people come in regardless of where they come from in Europe. If you're in Europe, you're white. I'm just, I'm here to tell you. If you speak Spanish, you're white. Mm -hmm. If you're from Spain, you're white. If you're from England, clearly you're white. 
when we're talking about colonialism, what we're talking about is exactly this, because there's a particular when that we're coming from, or that the conquistadors, if we're talking about conquistadors, settlers, if we're talking about settlers, right? There's a particular lens that we're coming from, especially at the time. So these people did not know social justice and they didn't give one iota about social justice. Even if it had existed at the time, they wouldn't have cared about it. What they wanted was to be able to write back to the motherland, whatever it may have been, whether that was Spain, whether that was France, whether that was England, and say, this is mm -hmm. why they need to be conquered. And this is why you need to send me more men and more money. So do you want me to blow your mind a little bit more? What we're saying about the colonizer lens in through the Spanish lens, we are actually talking about codices that are transcribed, that are being written, that are being dictated to friars by people who identify mainly with Nawa. They identify with Mexica people specifically, people who may be associated with the capital, but we're not getting the information necessarily from the Tlaxcalan. We're we're not getting the information necessarily from the Cholulans. So they have a different history about the Flowery War that unfortunately we might never ever know because those people didn't have their history recorded in context to the Flowery War. So the way they see the Flowery War is going to be very different. It's going to have a very different purpose than the way that the Mexica had they viewed the Flowery War. And so we're looking at necessarily the way that the Mexica people's information about the Flowery War was translated by Spanish, conquistadors by French. We're not even looking at that translation because it is Wikipedia, because a lot of the resources that are there are being pulled by white, mostly American scholars who have studied what friars and conquistadors wrote about these specific things. So and here's what I want to say about that. Kudos yeah. to the white people. I don't say that very often, but... Thank you to the scholars of whatever color, whatever origin, that are looking into these small things. Otherwise, we wouldn't know that Aztecs were triple alliance. There's a different viewpoint. And I'm going to say totally white nice. All right. Teotihuacan. Is that? Teotihuacan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That. I apologize to anybody when I say that. I mean, like, kudos to the people who are studying this. Because this, to me, gives me encouragement, I think. It makes me happy that we know what we know, and I know that there's more to know. Does that make sense? Like, without their study, regardless of their race, of their age, of their origin, whatever it is, they chose to study this, and I say kudos to them. You need to do what you're doing, because quite honestly, I had no idea the Aztecs weren't the Aztecs in a single solitary group of people like what yeah. we would call American, which also problematic in and of itself. I would love to get into that. I'm going to provide pushback yes, on that please um, do. because I, I do appreciate what has been recorded because as somebody who, as I've said before, I identify as detribalized. Of the tribes that I feel I'm probably most associated with, I don't have a lot of history to be able to look back on. A lot of it would require getting in touch with people who have oral history. And even then, there's a lot of the oral history that exists now is going to be very much mired in Spanish oppression. Because that is what the Mesoamerican peoples have had to deal with, not solely Mesoamerican peoples, but because I'm specifically talking about these peoples, have had to deal with since 1492. Since 1519, when officially it's historically written, recognized that the Aztec Empire fell. And when that happened, it creates a domino effect throughout all of Mesoamerica. And even though there are tribes who don't really succumb to Spanish oppression until much later in their history, it's a still going to have a ripple effect. Oh my so, gosh, 
that's, I think, the thing that people don't realize is that 1519 was people around the world should recognize 1519 as one of the most important dates in world history. I'm very conflicted by that. I do appreciate it. And I want more scholarship from people from these areas, from people whose this history is a part of their history, whether it's their hyper-local familial history or their local history. We don't have nearly enough voices that are relating this history. This is what colonized and conquistadores, this is how they describe this history. And then this is the way the history was actually transcribed. And these are the differences between the two. It's a lot like what you were saying in terms of translation. Subject translation is one thing, and then the written translation is something else. There are places where we need more interpretation. I'll give you, I'm laying out the red carpet for you right now. You can't see it, but yes, I, I agree with you because it's all in within the interpretation. I totally concede the floor to you on that one. Interpretation is everything. But I also agree, let's get the story out. Yeah, no, and I think that's where we are in agreement with. There's an importance in getting the story. Then there's the importance of including the voices that have been categorically and systematically marginalized, have been oppressed in being able to interpret this history. And yet they are the ones most affected by how this history is told and retold. And they are also the ones most aware of how this history should be presented in context. Just to kind of layer cake that, how I identify as somebody of indigenous ancestry, from folks talk to me when I'm like, oh, I identify as somebody who's of indigenous descent of Mesoamerican area. They're like, oh, you're Aztec. I'm like, bitch, nah. <laughs> like, <laughs> let me just say that there are so many other areas, there's so many other peoples in Mesoamerica at the time of Columbus's invasion, at the time of Cortez's invasion. I there are so many different tribes and that the conquistadors used this. Like they didn't know it at the time, but they were able to use it in a way that oh. even they didn't realize. So let me just tell you, and let me disabuse you of that idea that they uh -oh. didn't know because okay. they did. Oh, they uh, did. And this is, yes, this is a reason why I said Tlaxcalans when I gave you a city state, because just a side note of history right now, and this is something that we can talk about in another podcast. I plan on doing one on La Noche Triste, which for some folks who might know this is the night that Tecnitlan fell to the Spanish, the Tlaxcalans. Oh, I did hear about this. Part, okay, yeah, they partnered with the Spanish in order to bring the Mexica down. The Mexica were oppressors for their area. And that's going to be a controversial thing for a lot of folks because a lot of folks revere Mexica culture, Nahuatl culture, but the Mexica did essentially to the people of Mesoamerica, to the different peoples of Mesoamerica, what the Spanish would end up doing to the Mexica and the Nahuatl and the Aztec. And see, the Mexica is what I associate, I think, with Aztec, because I did know about that aspect. Mm -hmm. yeah. There were other tribes within the area, but yeah. I also understood that there were other tribes outside of the area that had no connection with the Mayans, the Incas, or quote-unquote Aztecs. That's fascinating. Okay, yeah. keep going, keep going. No kind of glad that you pointed that out. The Mexica were the part of the Triple Alliance that usually were the dominant peoples. Like That's they're, what we would actually identify as Aztec. So, so they're the ones who, their Huey was the leader of the Aztec Triple Alliance. Like the Triple yeah. Alliance, the Tlaxcalans and the Tlaxcalans, they had their leaders, but their leaders basically had to answer to the leader of Tenochtitlan, who was the And that's the where Mexica. we get Montezuma. That because is where we he get was the first and the second. And that's where we oh, get right, a lot of... Oh, right, because there were two. Again, to our listeners, I learned that later. 
So when we think of Moctezuma, a lot of people think there's one and there's actually more than one. And on top of that, a lot of the leadership that we identify as like, this is the way that Aztec leaders looked or sounded or were like, were actually leaders from the Mexica part of the empire. They were the, the leaders who were identified with the city-state of Tecotitlan. Can I just say, this is reminding me so much of our conversation about the Alamo in our first episode, <laughs> but in a completely different way. It's amazing to me when you break down social justice and you take an area like Mesoamerica, mm-hmm. but let's break it down to just the Aztec area. And mm-hmm. I'm using Aztec without quote, but using Aztec as that whole area. Even within that, you have an issue of social justice mm-hmm. because you have tribes that are not part of the three that are considered part yes. of the Aztec empire or leaders of the empire, that yes. they're actually, they literally are controlling and they're controlling them by force. Yep. These are, when I talked about vassals and vassal states, those are the people that would be part of the vassal states. They weren't part of the original triple alliance. They weren't part of the peoples who were able to come to the table and make conditions, make requests, make demands about how they should be treated. If you were to relate it to another empire, it's very much like the Roman Empire. And I was just discussing with Chad about how it's really important that we recognize that what we're talking about right now is a history that doesn't necessarily exist in a public space. And that's a problem because this kind of history is only really existing on Wikipedia pages. And for a lot of historians and academics who, again, poo-poo the idea of using Wikipedia, if we want public history, if we want the history to be educated on an issue as a public history issue, then we need to actually create spaces. We need to create room. We need to create something that the public can access that is not the space of Wikipedia. If you're an academic and you don't like Wikipedia, then we need some other place besides Wikipedia. Like if you're going to poo-poo Wikipedia, like you said, then we need another place where people can find information about them. I'm going to take that opportunity to challenge those academics who love this kind of history to actually uplift historians who are interested in this subject matter that are closer related to the subject, that are identify as Mesoamerican indigenous, that identify as descendants of Nahuatl peoples, to be able to create the public history space that is necessary to be able to have something that is an alternative to Wikipedia. It's 2020. I do love what past scholars have done I recognize a lot of the scholars have been white and mainly American of the United States. So it's time to pass that fucking baton to some people who that are descendants, that are trying to break through that history barrier. This is where we lift others up into that work. And I would say, as one of those people who would normally pass the baton, if you are of that origin, if you see yourself as a descendant of the Nahua people, if you are one of those people, and you don't feel like there's enough information out there, enough history out there. Pick it up. Take that baton. We want to see people like this. Want to see people taking this this kind of history on and really saying, this is what happened. And this is the interpretation of this. And this is the interpretation from a person who is descended from these people. This is what I know. This is what I feel. So this is a conversation about how that opportunity both presents itself for people to be able to participate in that and also how people can be able to participate in that opportunity and stick with it. A lot of it is an opportunity presents itself. Somebody can start with it, but doesn't end up going through because let's face it, finances, support, you know, especially in academia. 
I'm sure we're going to talk about this at some point, but the way that academia sucks, people, they're so fucking white and expensive. Go on. We will definitely have more to say about that in a future episode, but that's my point. It's not a lack of people who are interested. It's not a lack of people who want. It's that in-between that is so difficult to But here's the thing. I don't care if you're an Allison Ware version. Get that shit out. People poo-poo Allison Ware, but here's the thing. You know, she's white. She's English. She's a Tudor historian, for those of you who don't know. I'm using Allison Ware very specifically because people know who she is. She's written about this topic. Write about this topic. I'm going to stay in fairness. I have not researched every scholar that has touched this particular subject. And Aztec history in general, or Nahua history in general, I am saying that there is always room for more. And And that's what I'm saying. And also make it relatable, because that's one of the things that Alison Ware has done, is that she's made Mm -hmm. it relatable to the average person who's reading history. Make Nahua history relatable to us. I don't Mm -hmm. care if you have a PhD. If I know that you did the research, you're fine with me. Now, I know that not every historian, quote unquote, with a PhD is going to feel the same way. But you know what? This is about getting history out there. And this is the thing that people complain about. Study it. Get it out there for us to read it. Make it accessible to us. Don't be so academic. Yes, be academic to a extent, But don't be so academic that the normal person can't read it. So let's just recap real quick. The Flowery Wars were an understanding between the Aztec Triple Alliance city-states and the Tlaxcala Pueblan Valley city-states, which we identified as Tlaxcala, Huachotingo, and Cholula. These different city-states met. I just love Cholula. I'm just going to say that. I realize I'm drunk, but it's like the one of the only words that you just said that I can say drunk. And it's a hot song. And I'm going to be really honest. It is one of my favorite hot so I'm just saying. Cholula. Cholula. It's very good. (laughs) Shout out to Cholula if they'd like to sponsor us. Um, (laughs) These are groups that they had terms of agreement about how they would participate in these wars. These wars were set at specific times in places throughout the year. The places that they were set at were known as Hualtlali or Yaltlali. These were sacred sites. I cannot stress enough that there is this sacredness, there is this holiness to being able to participate. The places that these were held at, the times that these were held at, this was very structured and thought through. It is literally a holy land. What's really important is that during these wars, ranged weapons were not a part of them. At least that's what that's what we think. Really? We know. There's, so for um, those of you who are not military historians, ranged weapons are a huge thing. So the fact that you're extricating them from any kind of conflict mm-hmm. is very interesting. Because that means you have to do hand-to-hand combat. Exactly. You have to be up in person with your opponent. You have to be able to take them down. What's even more important in these, or at least what we think we know about the Flowery Wars, is that you have to take captives alive, which is really great. So again, this is all conjecture because we don't know what we don't know about how people actually live through this. But what historians and scholars and friars have translated over the years is that... FYI, people, she just said friars again, which means aka totally white people. Spanish colonial missionaries this hand-to-hand combat is important because of the taking of captives alive that's not to say that during the flowery wars people didn't die they did in fact most often commoners were the ones that died because if they weren't proficient or 
was one thing, but also because nobility was nobility, they were often the ones spared from being killed. My question with you is, or to you, excuse mm-hmm. me, I am aware, audience, of what a preposition is, so let me change <laughs> position to two. Mm-hmm. In European war, when someone was captive, mm-hmm. it was a form of money, like you ransomed them. So is this the same concept with the flowery wars, or is it something different? Oh, no. How the public is taught about the flowery wars is that one of the conditions of these wars was that whatever captive was taken by the opposing side was then to be taken to be a human sacrifice for the gods. So really? so captives were, their purpose was to be sacrificed. And what's really interesting is the flowery wars, at least historically, didn't seem to be a long tradition in Aztec history. It's a tradition that kind of started debatably between 1380-something and the 1400s. What happened is that there was a period of immense drought in the area where the Aztec Empire kind of was sprawled out through, and uh, also the Tlaxcala Puebla area and the Tlaxcala Puebla Valley. They felt like they exhausted all resources to bring rain. If anybody's curious about Mesoamerican gods and particular Nahua gods, Aztec gods, that is something that I find super interesting and fascinating and, and how they play in daily life. But there's this lack of rain, there's this drought. And it's said that there is an advisor to uh, Moctezuma I who says that in order to be able to get rid of this drought, that there must be, his name is Tlacadelal, and he offered a solution whereby the gods would always be served with human blood. And that would be able to satiate them so that they could in turn make the drought go away, bring the rain back, and be able to bring crops back, be able to feed the people. In their minds, they had exhausted every other resource. At least that's what's recorded. This information that I specifically quoted is from the Richard Hicks article on the Flowery so, Wars in Aztec history. Or, so sorry, I, Frederick want be, I want to be clear. Montezuma the first is the one that you're talking about, correct? Yes, yes. And Montezuma um, the second is the one that Cortez conquered, correct? Yeah. Okay. Arguably, I would say subjugated and killed. And I'm not disagreeing because that's usually what conquered means. So mm-hmm. just so people know across the board, when we say conquer, yeah. what we mean is that the, there are very few instances where this does not occur. But yeah. the person who is in control of those who were conquered are usually executed in some shape, way, or form, and their peoples either assimilated so that they lose their identity or completely and utterly like just subsumed in some shape, way, or form yes. into the conquerors. I do want to say that in what we know as Aztec history, a lot of folks who are subjugated by the Spanish are actually humiliated and they are ridiculed and they are made an example of a lot of these really? leaders. Yes. For many years before they are actually executed, because there's a lot of really? pride. Yes. There's a big sense of pride in Mesoamerican peoples, not just the Nahua, not just what we think of as the Aztec Empire, but across Mesoamerica, people are proud of who they are. They are proud of their association with the city-state. They are proud of their association with their god. And so in order to break that pride, the Spanish conquistadores subjugate their leaders into humiliating situations, into humiliating, just groveling kind of state. And it is angering. It is frustrating. And it also depresses the people. 
it breaks morale. It breaks the idea that they are people that can conquer anything because their God say they can conquer anything. Again, a large proportion of the soldiers were from nobility. This is where the nobility can actually participate in war because otherwise, if it was an angry war, nobility wouldn't be encouraged to participate. They could Which participate. is fascinating because when you look at the rest of history, but when you look at history in general, mm-hmm. angry war, I love that. I love yeah. that. It's very apropos. Right? Because now no, we have fantastic. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Because now we talk about Cold War as opposed to what? Hot war? What does a hot war mean? What does it mean to be hot? It means angry war. Anger. It I means rage. It. it means I love to, it. to act on that rage. And so but when you look at that war mm-hmm. on the whole across the world, that's when nobility is actually called to action. Right. Not during a ceremonial war. I'm not saying that nobility didn't participate in angry wars. Right. They did. But Flowery wars were very much a part for nobility to be able to participate, to sharpen their military skills, to be able to show their military prowess, to show anybody who might doubt the reason why they are stationed where they are. So remove all doubt. And kind of cool. So this being able to schedule these wars, where the, when they take place, where they take place, who participates in them, makes it available for folks to be able to participate at any time of year, which angry wars often took place in times whenever the harvest wasn't happening because you could not spare bodies during a harvest. You needed every hand available. One thing that most people may not realize, and some people will, but when you look at war across the globe, there were certain seasons in which you did not participate in war. Obviously, winter was one of those. Summer was the main one, but they tried to resist spring and autumn. They tried to resist, but if you were trying to disrupt in the most possible way that they could, then it would be spring and autumn because you couldn't plant and you couldn't harvest. So that goes to what you're talking about with the ceremonial aspect of war. Go on, sorry. It's okay. So flowery wars, because of their structured nature, were viewed as typically not as lethal as angry wars. Because you're not angry. You're not trying to eliminate as much of the enemy as possible. It's strategic. You know what you're trying to do. You're trying to capture enemy combatants for sacrifice. You're trying to showcase your military prowess. You're trying to make sure that your nobility is well taken care of. In fact, nobility is often spared during these flowery wars, and commoners are often the ones killed or captured for the intention of sacrifice. That's very akin to what happens throughout the rest of the world. The less of the title that you have, the less value you seem to be in a particular society. Well, and I was looking at Wars of the Roses, and we were talking about that. But it seems that in the Wars of the Roses, it's the nobility that's sacrificed, yeah. not the common. Yes, but that's different because it's if you were to look at it in the terms of this, it's an angry war. It's a war right? specific. Like it's kind of, yeah, it's because so fascinating. You need to eliminate the nobility. The nobility needs to be part of that conversation, that warring conversation, because it's nobility against nobility. So again, the contrast between, but the similarities too. Between right. these two different yeah, societies. Yeah, no, this is so fascinating. I, I love it. I'm so glad we did this. So something else that's referred to, again, I want to reiterate that this is the public history from the Wikipedia page. So I am just kind of reiterating it and reinterpreting it. But there is this idea that in the flower war, it's more noble to die in a flower war than it is to die in an angry war. Warriors who die in battle are revered versus warriors who are able to live out into old age. It's uh, for those so weird to me. And and this is not the first culture, if you will, to talk about this. If you look at Vikings, Vikings felt the same way. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Like Vikings 
you die in battle, you go to Valhalla, you don't want to die in old age. And I'm like, but doesn't that mean you're a, you're a better warrior if you don't die in battle? Like yeah. this concept of, of dying in battle versus dying old. Mm-hmm. If you die old, doesn't that mean that, especially if you're a Viking, yeah. that you've been through many battles mm-hmm. and that's what the Valkyries want. They right. want you. They want to experience clearly you know how to kill people and stay alive see i feel a lot of that has to do with passion with ardor with the fervor that you get wrapped up in the act of doing that you are so involved that you are willing to give your life to that action that cause that that is what the gods want the gods I want to think it's really interesting the words that you use which is fervor and ardor you don't hear those words very often. And I think that's very telling and kind of fascinating. But yeah, like that's really amazing. Okay, keep going. There were no more noble dying than in a typical war. Again, because there are more nobility participating in this kind of war than in angry wars. But the word for a flower war death is Xochimikwitsli, which translates to flowery death, blissful death, or fortunate death. To die in a flowery war was to have a more noble death. It's a more desired death. It's a lot like when we were talking about Valhalla. If you're going to die in war, you're going to want to die in a flowery war versus you want to die in an angry war. Because the flowery wars, again, are associated very much with military prowess. They're associated very much with human sacrifice, sacrificing to the gods because there are droughts happening at this time that these flowery wars are being established. So those who died during flowery wars were transported to the heaven where Huitzilopochtli, which is the supreme god of sun, fire, and war live. And actually, the 13 levels of heaven and the 13 levels of the underworld are a very important part of the cosmology of the Aztec peoples, the Nahuatl peoples, the people who are part of the Triple Alliance, because the people of Tecnoticlan are proselytizing their idea of what perfect afterlife could be versus the afterlife you probably wouldn't prefer to go to. That in and of itself is somewhat fascinating. Yeah. Before we continue, I just want to go ahead and clear up some things about the Flowery Wars. First of all, I want to clarify that the definition for a papachad actually is to, and maybe I said this right the first time, I can't quite remember right now, but I think I said it was to hug with your whole heart when actually it's to hug with your whole soul. So it's a lot more poetic, yeah, than I than I originally. I like that. I'm going to start putting that in my lexicon. Yeah, it's to care for somebody with your whole soul, but that's not even right. It's like really to hug somebody with your whole soul. So that's the definition of a papa chat. And then also for the flowery wars, our protagonists on each side when we talked about the Triple Alliance, the Aztec Triple Alliance was made up of, and it was between the city-states of Tenochtitlan, Texcoco, and Tlacopan, which is different from the mountain states of Tlaxcala, Huitzchotingo, and Cholula. I had brought up how Tlaxcala was going to be really important in terms of the history of the Triple Alliance, because that's going to be really important when we eventually touch on the subject of La Noche Triste. So we need to keep in mind that this indigenous tribe was the antagonist in the minds of the Triple Alliance. They are the opposers. They're the other team. Really put this in context. Oral histories are such an important part of many native peoples world throughout the world. Indigenous peoples all over the world. And this isn't exclusive to indigenous folks who are black or brown. This is also 
in places where there is a native population of what we would consider white cultures, oral history is a very important part. Oral history has classically been an important part of culture, of building society, of establishing norms. This is where you get a lot of this information. What I find interesting when it comes to the information that's available for the flower divorce, for the average person, you know, going back to time you have Wikipedia, you have a couple of articles online. If you know Spanish, you might be able to access some of those articles in Spanish as well, but it's a lot of writing. There's this huge and heavy reliance on the written word of what happened in this history. And then when you read about who's been writing that history, it's academic scholars in the last hundred years. Before that, it was academic scholars of a specific area of the world, which is Spanish or Mexican. So you have scholars in the last hundred years who have processed and reprocessed what they think the Flowery Wars were about, what the history that has been recorded, dissecting it and redissecting it. Before that, you have the religious sects, the friars, the Jesuits, who's helping write down the written history of it, who are taking what participants of or descendants of this culture have been saying about, this is what the Flowery Wars, this is what we remember, this is what we were told, this is what we think it was based off of maybe not even a personal memory. It's just they're kind of removed. And then before that, you have the people who are in charge of trying to keep this history alive through whether it's oral history and then written history, right? Like they're the people who are directly related to the culture. But then that's really kind of it. You don't have a lot of, I mean, there, there are codices that exist that have this information, but it's filtered and filtered and filtered until we get what we have now. What really resonates with what's out there about the flowery wars, what's available. I'm really going to super disclaimer this for folks who are English, primarily English speaking or English readers, what's available for public consumption is very, very very layered in who's doing the presenting of that history. There's not a whole lot of information because this might be, I don't know, prickly for some folks. There's a vested interest to keep this history very unappealing to Western minds. I'm very curious as to why you say that. I'm so glad you asked, because I firmly think this particular article by Frederick Hicks, The Flowery War in Aztec History, which it's been a fascinating read. It's only a few pages long, but his theory, he kind of ends his article that the Flowery Wars are not based in depiction of Aztecs as being consumed with this idea of needing human sacrifice, and that's why they have these wars. It's really about the military strategy. It's about having a proxy war where at the end, when you have a willing opposing side who agrees to these terms where people don't have to be killed, but the whole purpose of it is to make sure that your warriors are well trained. So in the necessity of war, you don't have this military force that is flaccid, (laughs) for the lack of a better word. Well, given that military is typically male, I think placid is an appropriate term. You establish early on how you're going to talk about a group of people or a practice or an area, and you are always part of the powers that control the narrative, then you don't really have to worry about how people are going to perceive it. They're going to perceive it exactly as you want to deliver it. And that's something that I think is very prominent throughout the available resources that are out there for public consumption. And I want to bring this back real quickly to public history. There are no historical sites. And look, I did a search. I tried to find through tourism or any other way. 
if there are places that are akin to a battlefield that, you know, popular battlefields of the United States or popular battlefields in Europe or European theater or Asian theater or anything like that, because by the time this history is being recorded, the people who are most involved are no longer either alive or they're so subjugated that they have no interest. There's no positive. Keep harping on this idea of like, remember the lenses that we're looking at this history from, because again, this podcast is about public history. It's about these fascinating histories. And for me, it's definitely with the War of the Roses, it was learning about that because I don't have a whole lot of experience. For Chad, it's the Flowery Wars. For both of us, we're talking about the Alamo because it's something that we're both interested in and we know about. We have our own fascination with that history. But it comes back. We are looking at this from the lens of public history. When we talked about the Alamo, we're talking about how the Alamo is revered and upheld in public history. For Flowery Wars, Chad had a very elaborate history that was comprised from multiple different sources, which multiple interpretive lenses. A lot of the information on the Flowery Wars was recorded after 1519. So I was saying that there's these 500 years of recording and re-recording and reinterpreting this history. So of course it's going to change as the folks who are recording and interpreting this history need it to change. And also just, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of time for this history to exist in a certain way. I think what's really interesting is if we take it back to, I'm totally going to butcher the word, so I'm not even going to try to say it, but the word that you started out with that you were correcting. Oh, apapacha. Yeah. Yes. So that's a word, but it's a word that encapsulates a concept. There's no direct translation. So when you're moving from language to language to language to language, you're losing some of that. You're losing a lot of it. And so that's one of the things that interpreters have an issue with, especially with historical documents. And then again, we have to remember, we're talking about, there are words that don't exist anymore. The exact opposite is happening. So then you have to, it's context clue this crap until we get a right interpretation. And even then that interpretation may be wrong. You have this particular topic that you're talking about with the information that we have. You already have this layering of conquerors who want a particular opinion. So it's not like these are objective translators. You know, we have that, and I brought this up, about the context. The Flowery Wars are Flowery Wars to the Aztec Triple Alliance, but they're not, they're not necessarily Flowery Wars to the opposing party. And it's something that Hicks... A fair point. So we have something that's kind of come up definitely in the last couple of decades in the way that people who identify as Mesoamerican or descendants of Mesoamerican indigenous peoples is when we talk about Mexican Indians, right? And I'm putting those in quotes. A lot of folks think Aztec. You're Aztec or you're Mayan. And Mayans are a whole other thing. It's very Central American. So you have descendants of the people who identify or people who've identified their family or they know that they come from indigenous ancestry of Mesoamerican peoples. And there's now this conversation about how, no, we're not all Aztec. Well, even Aztec weren't all Aztec. Anyway, go on. Right. Aztec as the concept as we think we know it isn't even the way that we think we know it. But aside from that, it's not just people from these three city-states that make up all of Mesoamerica. You have folks from all over Mesoamerica, all these different tribes. So you have the Flowery Wars with these participants, the the Aztec Triple Alliance, and you have the mountain states, the city-states. And they don't see things the same way. They don't talk about them in the same way. The Tlaxcala Pueblo Valley. So you have these two groups, and we're getting the narrative as is accepted by the Spanish 
from those that they deemed acceptable to get that history from. Because you're, even when Spanish friars and Spanish conquistadores and you know, these people who are putting this to the written word are writing it down, they're talking to the folks in the Triple Alliance who have more of a vested interest to pass on that Aztec history. So we don't know what we don't know. So that's something that Hicks brings up, is that the Flowery Wars are called the Flowery Wars by the folks who had the upper hand. The Triple Alliance, for the most part. Yeah, for the most part, the Triple Alliance. And he says this at the end of the second page. I mean, the article is only three pages long, so it's not even a long read. But he just talks about how the Triple Alliance calls it the Flowery Wars. To be sure, in an unequal contest, what was sport for the stronger might not have been sport for the weaker. And he puts sport in quotes. The Chalca had sport with the Tlacochalca and the Mexica, which is also another descriptive word for Aztec. It's Aztecs, the way that Aztecs are called in the United States, Mexico, Mexican indigenous people, Mesoamerican indigenous descendants refer to them as Mexica people. So the Mexica had sport with the Tlaxcalans and their neighbors, but it may not have been viewed as sport by their opponents. So Mexica peoples are saying, this is a sport. This is what we do to build our military prowess. It's a mutual thing. But Tlaxcalans, you have the mountain valley people who are like, nah, not really. This is the way they're going to decide to describe it. I want to see if this is where we're coming from. So one side, this is an annual thing, whereas the other side is going, no, this is an annual war that you put on for yourselves and we're defending ourselves. Is that kind of what I'm getting? It's very much, it is not a flowery war because it's aggression. You're still being aggressive. You're still, to be very poetic about it, but you're sharpening the tools of your army, which are your soldiers, and you're using us as a whetstone. That's the way it's received. But this is the history that wasn't recorded in as much dedication as was from the Mexica peoples. So you have lens on lens on lens on lens on lens. So when you start peeling it back, the reason this is so important is because Hicks argues in his article, and I'll go back to it, that these flowery wars are not sacrificial flowery wars. They're the the non-angry wars in order to to gain sacrificial victims for appeasing the gods. To be clear, the sacrificial victims that we're talking about are actually not of the Triple Alliance. Yes, you have both sides participating in the ability to capture the opposing side's warriors for the sacrifice. So the Mexica, the Aztec, are not the only ones that are able to capture and sacrifice. That's what I'm saying. The Mexica are not sacrificing their own people. Yeah, and likewise, the Tlaxcala Puebla Valley people are not capturing their own people for sacrifice. It's very distinctly that they're capturing the opposing side. But even then, the whole concept of sacrifice is not something that is, Hicks argues, that's not even really what's going on. And this goes back to what we were talking about, with the way that what what is presented of a history of a people is what justifies their treatment later. So if you focus on the sacrifice aspect of the Mexica, of the Triple Alliance, then you have no reason to be equitable in your pursuit of their resources, of their land. You have this false justification. Yeah, you're giving yourself false justification. Yeah. Because you're saying, oh, look, we're recording this history, and according to this history, they have, even in this practice of choreographed war, so to speak, look at the way that they treat their captors, look at the way that they treat folks, and this is what we're battling. That concept of going for the soul is always wrapping up because it's always about God, really. When we're looking at the conquistadors, I mean, they're saying God, y'all, 
if you read these histories, there's always going to be one fucking friar there. No offense to the Catholic, like seriously, but there's, it's always for look in most cases though, because really what they're going for, what they were there for was to wreak havoc on the land, not caring about the person and sometimes not even recognizing it as a person. You read Christopher Columbus's, y'all don't even know the look. You don't even know the look that went with that. I wish that that could actually be recorded for you. But yeah, like you read this stuff and I'm, it's fascinating. That to me is what's fascinating in a way about the conquistadors and what in that time period is just this inability to see them as people, as other people, not othered, but as other people. It's fascinating to me. Anyway, go on. I'm sorry. Totally went off on a Temple of Doom is what I was left with though when you were thinking about that. And it just, that's deliberate, right? It's also very much how popular culture takes things from popular history and then uses that for interpretation for their purposes for entertainment or other. Yeah, I think we definitely need to have just a movie day thing where we talk about that. But you said something really interesting. It's about going after the soul. And the question I wrote down was what constitutes the soul of a people? And, you know, so I'm going to try and be a little daring in answering that, but it's very much this way that flowery wars are recorded the way that it's available in the public right now in these articles, in what exists that's available for, for, for folks to access, it's very telling of the audiences that read this that the Flowery Wars at least have had been previously recorded and talked about as this practice in order to gain human sacrifices for appeasing God, which is in Western culture has often been associated with like savagery and the reasons for conquest and the reasons for colonization. So... Hicks has argued in his article, and what others have followed up with, is that the Flowery Wars was practicing military and strategy and warfare so that when the time came, if you had to go into war, which the Aztec Triple Alliance and the Shika people were very much a warring people. They were about going out and finding new areas and assimilating those into the empire. There's a reason why there's so many parallels to Rome. There's a reason why also when people talk about the Aztec Empire, when by people, historians that address to the public, when they talk about Aztec history and the Aztec empire, they talk about it in terms of this huge sprawling empire. It existed that way. In its peak, it was a large empire. So you have folks who are talking about the military aspect, and that is a very relatable thing, I think, for Western history. Western history, there's so much room, like there's so much emphasis on warfare there's so much emphasis on conquest. There's so much emphasis on, it's saying, don't focus on the Flowery Wars practical military aspect, because that's too close to what we look like. And I'm saying that from, from the Spanish conquistador perspective. So we're going to change the narrative. We're going to put the emphasis on the sacrifice of it, because we've also talked about how, one, paganism is a terrible thing. You should already be Christian and Catholic, because we just came out of the 400 years of Moorish occupation of Spain. You know, putting it in context, you also have the reputation that's still currently going on. And you have what is the beginning and is the ongoing Inquisition. So the rooting out of anything non-Christian. That's a whole topic in and of itself, folks, which I am fascinated by and we are totally going to go into. To all of that, so you have this one smaller aspect of what is this large history of a large empire of peoples that is affected by the surrounding peoples, their vassals, their enemies, their even those who are on their trade route. Trade in Mesoamerica at this time is very similar 
it's so similar to what happens during the Silk Road. Yeah, and I think that people totally don't get that. We go back to the necessity of creating an image of a history of a people's in a certain way. And I kind of like that of all of the stuff that's out there, by no means am I saying Frederick Hicks is the number one and he's the best, but I think he does a very good job in his article. Can you say the title of the article again? Yes, it's Flowery War, in quotes, in Aztec History. It's by Frederick Hicks, that's F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C, Hicks, H-I-C-K-S. It's from the University of Louisville. I don't recall exactly what journal it is, but if, if you Google that, you'll be able to find that information. The stuff that I pulled from the Flowery War again was the link to Wikipedia. I made sure that when I did this, I was doing that for a drop of a hat. If I am somebody who's interested and I want to know more about this, if I hit Google, what would I get? And again, we've said this, I think, in every single episode that we've talked about so far. We're not advocating Wikipedia as the source that you should rely on. What we're saying is it typically hits the mark. There may be some stuff I'm questionable on, but for the most part, you get an overall idea. As we've both said before, it is a great place for both resources and sources, especially if it's a, a history article they have in Wikipedia. Those two things are there, the resources and the sources, the resources that it's quoting from and the further reading is sometimes what they call it as well. I think that's really fantastic that you did that because it does let people see where they can go because I haven't done it. I meant to this week. I think it's really important to see what people can pull up. So could they pull up Frederick Hicks's? Yeah, they could. If I'm not mistaken, I pulled this from JSTOR, which is a very large scholarly article site. You can pull articles from a bunch of different journals. If you don't know about JSTOR, I definitely would recommend looking it up and looking at the website and kind of familiarizing yourself with it. It's got articles from all kinds of subjects. It's not limited to history. Let me just stress that. Here's my question, because we talked about what the Flowery Wars are, right? So do we know how they begin and do we know how they end? Yes, there is some information about that. And I was super excited to see that that at least existed in what was available. It's believed that the Flowery Wars began as a suggestion, an idea from an advisor to one of the Tlatelanes. I feel kind of like, not guilty, but I do feel kind of like embarrassed to some degree that I don't, I can't pronounce this better, but then I'm also kind of have to take some grace in that, like, I'm trying to learn constantly and every time I, I think I, I kind of have we apologize in advance and at the same time we welcome constructive criticism yes yeah, so especially as it pertains making sure that we're getting the pronunciation of peoples and places correctly because this interest in research and reading that we do has come from a place that I know for me it's a great place of love to understand why these practices existed and then to make the effort to go past, okay, I'm reading this, I'm reading what the scholar is saying about it, but what can it actually be like? What was it, maybe the original intention that this person is completely missing? And that's why I've been stressing so much. How many different lenses has this one history gone through? How many different ways of filtering it? So to answer your question. So advisor says, hey, we should totally go to war with some of these people on a, on a regular basis. Yes. So most scholars, authors, Hicks says, Transmontania Wars, which is Trans Mountain Valley Wars, to the Great Drought and Famine of 1454 to 1456. Oh, that makes so much more sense. A lot of what I've read has referred to 
the beginning of these flowery wars as in this goes to the whole sacrifice the reason that they needed these flowery wars was that there was relative peace in the area but there was these droughts and in order to make the droughts go away there was this need to appease the gods and that there was a priest and by priest i mean of the mexica peoples like a holy person who said that they communed with the gods and that what was needed was human sacrifice in order for the droughts to pass. So had human sacrifice been done before this? Do you know? Yes. So what I understand of human sacrifices, and it actually does relate to Aztec and Nahua history, Mexica history, is that that happens during actual angry wars. Captors are taken during angry wars. And sacrifices are made to give thanks to the god, Huitzilopochtli. Huitzilopochtli is often referred to as one of the main gods. And it's interesting because he's a god that comes around later in Mesoamerican and Aztec in the pantheon, but he's the god of war. And he's also represented by the sun, which is why sacrifices happen on the pyramid of the sun. When you have been successful in war, of course, you need to offer some kind of thanks. And so that thanks is done through human sacrifice. It is a practice. It's not the practice. So Hicks is saying that this account is coming from Alba Sixil or Xochitl, who's the person who first wrote about this, but that the flowery wars, at least what Alva wrote, was all material means to alleviate the suffering caused by drought. So that's where a lot of folks also get that idea. Of course, this has to do with sacrifice because if there's droughts. Yeah, it makes a little more sense. Why? Especially if you have a series of droughts. During that medieval era, you had to find an explanation for things. This is why things got really weird during the plague. It's not that science didn't exist, and I, I want people to recognize that as well. It's not that science didn't exist. It's that science was very young, and it wasn't always reliable. And there were constant advances being made, but you had to explain. When you have a cosmos, whether it's one god or multiples, especially if it's not just a one-off route, there has to be an explanation, and it's usually a cosmological one. The other thing about science in that time period in Europe in Western civilization at that time is that something about science is by its very nature, it's not consistent. It is meant to not be consistent. You have hypotheses for that. And then you have to find that is, and even when you find that your hypothesis is backed up by the data that you collect, it's always subject to change, much like the way history should be. I digress. Are you saying history is a science? I'm saying that history is you can always do with a good revision every now and then. And just to make sure that you understand and you are coming from things from a different perspective. That's been my argument with this history this whole time is that there have been these lenses and they've been kind of hard and fast. The thing that I would say about those lenses, though, and this is what fascinates me, is that it's only been recently that the lenses that we're using are now lenses to peel away the lenses that we're focusing on the back. How can we peel away this lens that we know clearly was focused on X and that's the other thing, too. Peeling away the lens isn't a bad thing when you remember why that lens was put there to begin with. The lens itself is a historical artifact. The way that it's interpreted is a historical artifact. Why was it interpreted that way? What was the motivation? So Hicks is saying that Alva Ixtinxochi, he writes down in this article that he's also the only source to record this as. That's not to say that it wasn't interpreted from other writings. Whether you have conquistadores or you have Spanish soldiers who are reporting back to the crown and they're saying, this is how it is. It's one thing to make that the popular narrative of a people's, but this is the only time that it's recorded as this is a possibility of it being an origin. And when was that? 
it comes from an account by Alba. Resource has it marked down from 1952, Volume 2. Wow. Yeah, page 207. And it's Fernando de Alba, Ixlitzochtli, Obras Históricas, or Oral Histories, Volume 2. So 1952, that is when that resource... Yeah, that's like 500 years later. Yeah, that's where the account is recorded. That's where Hicks has cited this in his article. So you have that. Hicks also puts in information, according to Alvaro... That source, Alvaro de Sosmoc. So he writes down 1975 is when this particular resource is referred to. So Alvaro de Sosmoc, according to him, the only sacrifices offered to appease the gods on this occasion were albinos, hydrocephalics, hunchbacks, and dwarves. What's hydrocephalics? That- hydrocephalics, I believe that's when you have a condition in the brain. It happens in the development of the child in the womb where you retain too much water in the cranium, in the brain. Hydrocephalics suffer from hydrocephalus, which is water in the brain, or water on the brain. That extra fluid puts pressure on the brain and can cause brain damage. Wow, that's so specific. So Alvarado de Sosmo is talking about the only time sacrifices were offered to appease the gods were in the occasion of offering albinos, hydrocephalics, hunchbacks, and dwarves, and were not captured in war. That is the part I wanted to emphasize, that human sacrifice, according to the source, doesn't even happen either during the Flowery War or during Wars. This is what's fascinating to me, is when you think about that, all of those are recessive genes. Those are genetic things. Albinoism, dwarfism, all of that. So fascinating that those are the ones. So we started with Alba Ixunzotl and his account. I just wanted to clear it up. The account that is referenced in the article comes from a resource that was published in 1952, but Fernando de Alba Cortés Ixlizotil actually was born in 1568 and died in 1648. So this is probably one of those accounts that I was referring to where he didn't live through it, but he's had this oral history passed down. That's brilliant. And that's the other thing I want people to get when we're talking about history a lot of times. I'm so glad you did that because while something may be published much later, the person or topic or resource that they're they're dealing with in that particular publication may have actually come up earlier. So I'm really glad you cleared that up. Well, because I was also confused about that. Why would it take so long? Hicks says it, uses the word account. That is such an important way of also figuring out how you're reading this history. If an article writer, if an author is writing about things as this is an account, and then they cite a source that kind of happened later, you maybe want to infer from that, that while it is in a published work that happened in our case, in the 20th century, it's an account that was recorded much, much earlier. Well, also, to piggyback on top of that, when they say account, you also have to keep in mind that there's a particular viewpoint for the person that is giving that account, and the author is keeping that in mind. Exactly. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Again, it's oral history, it's perception, it's perspective, it is who's doing the narrating, who's doing the talking on this. So, Alva Ixusochu his account was that these flowery wars were a means to alleviate suffering caused by drought, that it was decided that this was a last resort to appeal to the gods, to offer sacrifice was a last resort. So that's how they overall started. That's where that first theory starts. It starts with Alva. But how did they start a battle or a war that year's war? Do we know? That's the reasoning. The reasoning is drought. Hicks writes, accordingly, the rulers of the Triple Alliance and those of the Transmontana states were also affected. So this goes into 
why would these people who are always at war with the Aztec Triple Alliance, why would they ever agree to having a flowery war? Why would you do that? Why would you send your soldiers to essentially be used as target practice, as fodder? It's because, yes, the Triple Alliance has decided that this is a way to ease the droughts that are happening, but the agreement happens because these other city-states are also being affected by the drought. And so they've come together and decided this has to happen. And so that's where you get the agreement from. And so you have the start of these wars. You have an agreement that you're going to meet at a certain place at a certain time with a certain number of soldiers. And the terms of the war, I put that in quotes, that you'll have captors you'll let go of, nobility are not to be killed during this time, and that this is just a practice war. This isn't a real thing. You know, that's kind of fascinating. And here's why I say that, because I didn't know this before, and I probably should have mentioned this during the episode with the Wars of the Roses, but typically during medieval times, you actually avoided going into battle. So most people don't realize that when you're talking about Western warfare, there are what they envision, these knights on these horses and these charge, these big battlefields. That was rare, and you didn't want to do that because you didn't know ultimately what the outcome was going to be. So you actually didn't want to go into battle until you knew what the outcome was going to be. And usually that outcome that you were going to win. That's what you were really going for. So what's interesting, though, is when they did go into battle, nobility, you were claiming you were nobility. Like you get knocked off a horse and you're dropped onto the ground and somebody's coming in for the killing blow and you're like, no, 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 I'm the Duke of Ajancourt or whatever it is. Like, like I totally just made up the title. And then they go, oh, shit. Okay, cool. I claim you. Well, they probably didn't say, oh, shit. They could have. Who knows? And they're like, oh, fuck. Oh, shite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, anyway, so they would actually take the nobility. So the, the idea was nobility wouldn't be killed and that they would be ransomed, which sounds very similar to the Flowery Wars. Well, and that's the thing. So in the Flowery Wars, nobility isn't taken, but commoners are. Those who are not part of noble class. And according, when you look at it from that sacrificial lens, those are the folks who get sacrificed. Well, that would make sense. Although where I go, because I am a poor person, kill the rich people because the gods are going to love them more. You would probably rise through the ranks quite quickly. <laughs> it's a strategic political strategy. No, it really is. It really is. So again, Hicks is talking about, this is Alva's account. This is why the Flowery Wars exist, to stage battles in order to procure sacrificial victims from both sides so that they can appease the gods and help end the droughts in their areas. Because just because one side does sacrifice, it doesn't mean all of the area gets free from drought. You have to do your part in your city-state. Right, because we're talking about city-states. We're not talking about a centralized empire. Yes. The only people who are that idea of centralized empire are the Mexica, the Aztec people, the peoples of Tecnicuplan, of Taxcoco, and Tlacopan. They are together in this. And then, of course, Hicks again says, Alva's account is the only source to record this. And what I think is interesting is that he says he did not recall it a flowery war, nor did he indicate that it continued after the drought ended. So that's something. Interesting. And then Hicks presents that maybe it may not have even happened. Really? This is where I bring in Alvarado Teso Somoc. Alvarado is the one that talked about the only time sacrifices were offered were in the cases of albinos, hydrocephics, and hunchbacks and dwarves. And there weren't people captured anymore. So what we think we know about human sacrifice by the Aztecs, by the Mexica, by the Triple Alliance, may not even be accurate because you have these different accounts from different areas. Alva, he was in 1458 to 16-something, right? He was born 
1568, and he died in 1648. And for those who might be really interested where exactly, he was born in Texcoco. Texcoco is one of those three city-states that is oh, part of the Triple Alliance. Perfect. So Alvarado... He is born... Actually, I don't have a birthday for him, but he died in 1606. Oh, so he's a contemporary of Oliver. He's a colonial Nahuatl noble. Again, this is why his account is recorded. You have this person who is a Nahuatl who has this association with the Mexica, with the Aztec, with the Triple Alliance. And according to him, the only time sacrifices happened were when you had an occasion for it, there were these groups of people and they were people who were not captured in war. Two different accounts of sacrifice. And one relates to the Flowery Wars, possibly. It's not even explicitly stated. And the other one has nothing to do with war in general. Flowery or angry wars. That is fascinating. And so Hicks goes on in the next paragraph that there's a different origin to the Transmontana Wars. And that's recorded in something known as the Grunfadias Histories. And that's the one that's preferred by most modern authors. So according to these accounts, I'm quoting this directly from the article. According to these accounts, Moctezuma I wanted to dedicate the new temple of Huxtepochtli with the sacrifice of prisoners recently taken in Oaxaca. But the temple was still a long way from completion, and his advisors, Sakaelel, advised him not to wait, but to order them sacrificed right away. But if that were to be done, Moctezuma asked, how could it be certain that there would be another war and new prisoners could be taken by the time the dedication happened? So that's when Tlacaelel offered a solution whereby the gods would always be served with human blood and there would always be opportunity for the sons of the wards and the lovers of war to exercise their skills and prove their valor. So in this, Hicks is saying that according to the Cronica X histories, what's recorded is that in those accounts that the flowery wars become a necessity as a perpetual state of sacrifice. But again, this focuses on the sacrifice aspect of it. This doesn't even touch the military aspect of it. But these would happen. One would go there periodically to buy honor and glory with blood and lives. Wow. So we actually have three different variations as to, one, the flowery wars, and two, the sacrifices. Yeah. And of course, Hicks again mentioned, there's no mention of flowery war in connection with this proposal. That's the thing. So there's extrapolation happening from the fact that this is an account that exists. So there's that. Wow. <sighs> People, I love them. It's a lot of interesting stuff. And mind you, it's not just, Hicks goes into a lot of interesting conversation about the way that sacrifice is looked into and then just in general, the flowery wars. But the flowery wars were, there's that theory that there was a drought and there was a necessity. So there was this being spoken to by a higher power, by divinity, by source, to tell you, hey, you need to do this in order to cause these droughts to go away. But the very practical side of the thing that Hicks stresses quite a bit is, he summarizes this in his very last paragraph, he concludes that a flowery war was any war that was not aimed at conquest, and that its most common function was to provide practical military training and exercise. And he's like, sometimes it's just as simple as that. It's just as simple as saying, this is about making sure that in the times where there is no war happening, that you still have a very able-bodied, a, a very ready army at your disposal. It's like a formalized raid is really what we're talking about. You go in for a raid. A raid is not necessarily a battle. Wow, that's fascinating. There's that. So the history of the Flowery Wars, to kind of sum it all back, are these proxy wars, they're these agreed-upon Times, places, wars between the Aztec Triple Alliance, which again is Tecnoticlan, 
Texcoco and Tlacopan. And then on the opposite side of that, the enemies, and I put that in quotes, included the city-states of Tlaxcala, Huitzotingo, and Cholula, which make up the Tlaxcala Puebloan Valley of people. So these flowering wars are predetermined. The engagement of war is predetermined ahead of time. Nobles are part of it, but they're not to be captured. Those who are part of the common class of peoples are trying to prove their military skill so that they can hopefully be promoted up ranks and able to achieve a much higher status in society. I think it's really fascinating though this, this kind of idea of ritualized warfare. Again, what you were saying is while the nobility are able to get free, which that kind of runs across all cultures, bastards, the 1% always get away with it. Doesn't matter what culture or what time period we're talking about, 1% able to get away with. The point is, this idea of ritualized warfare is very interesting to me. And the idea that the nobility, like you're literally honing your skill, but we still don't even know. Obviously, the nobility get away. They're fine. But it's always the lower class. So when I say lower class, I mean anything, essentially, it's not the 1% to be quite honest. Because we don't even know, based on those two contemporary accounts, we're not even sure if, if the people who were captured, first of all, we don't even know if flower rewards really exist. It sounds like there's evidence for that they actually did, but then were the non-1% actually sacrificed? And the other thing that I'm always fascinated by is I wish somebody sometime, somewhere, somehow, regardless of what we're talking about when we're talking about sacrifice in Vikings, and this is random and I totally get it, it seems like it's completely off, just out of left field. And I bring up the show Vikings and we're talking about the Vikings. But I always, the Viking culture did actually have, but the idea that someone's giving up their life. So nobody ever captured the mindset of the person who's being sacrificed. So the idea that we get, so when we're talking about Aztec, we're seeing it as savagery. But when we're talking about Viking culture and someone's being sacrificed, one, it's not considered sacrifice because this person is being burned along with the nobility. Same thing was happening in Egypt. But I wonder if we're taking those two completely different cultures into account, the Vikings with the idea of I'm giving myself over to be the helper, whatever servant in death. It always seems like it's an honored position. Same thing with Egypt. Would that not be the case for sacrifices in Aztec culture? So this isn't in the stuff that I pulled for this, but what I have read about in the different books and things and articles that I've read, my understanding is that, yes, there's, even if the captive wasn't considering it a high honor to be sacrificed, if that was the issue, it was an honor for the Mexica to, this person is being sacrificed and there's an honor to that. So even in defeat, you need to honor this person who is about to be sacrificed because this person's sacrifice is going to help perpetuate the empire. We tend to put, even though we know we're not supposed to, we tend to put our modern aesthetic, cultural aesthetic onto the cultures that we're studying. So this idea of giving up your life, this idea of sacrifice can seem very savage. And especially if you put a very Christian bent on it, being able to maneuver your way away from that to take your mind and your heart, your soul, whatever, however you want to view that, being able to separate it and kind of look at objectively. And I just wonder, was that how people felt? Were they honored? Not the people from the outside, but the person who's actually, in this case, walking up the pyramid, in the other case, being buried in the pyramid, and in another case, 
when we're talking about Vikings, and quite honestly, if there's any Viking historians out there, you may be like, this guy is completely off base and he should stop basing anything that he knows about Vikings on the show Vikings. Which, by the way, if you haven't watched, you totally need to watch. Also, if you're listening and are a Viking historian, come on board and talk with us and let us be enthralled with what you're telling us. So I love Vikings. Nobody knows this. It's a secret love of mine. The fact that they were able to go everywhere. I'm surprised they didn't circumnavigate the world, to be quite honest. That would be totally fascinating because you know that there's a ton of stories about different cultures having circumnavigated. Most people don't know this. They're like, fascinating. Anyway, just never taken the time because there's always something more. So anyway, this is one of those moments where I really wish that we had maybe not a personal account, although that would be fantastic, an account of someone who was sacrificed. And there's none of what we get as always, are the people who are sacrificing that person. And so much of this history is also the people who are subjugating. It's fascinating to me because part of me is, if I'm going up the pyramid, am I pissed because I'm not part of the Mashika and this is a dishonor? Or am I disappointed that my sacrifice is going towards the Mashika, not my own peoples, but I'm still honored that I'm being sacrificed at all? just disappointed that it's going to the wrong people. And we're only talking about the perspective of somebody who is being sacrificed at the Templo Mayor, at the Temple of the Pyramid of the Sun, not the people who are part of the Mountain Valley states who have captured people for the same exact, whether it's appeasement, whether it's celebration, whether it's honor, whatever it is, it's that lost history, I think. I wonder if there's a sacrifice historian. That'd be fascinating. I would be, oh man, I would be more inclined to be, I want to read that from somebody who is closer to the history, especially with indigenous people's history. Unfortunately, it's become very much, you take what you can get. And I think the one thing that I really appreciate about first peoples, native people, indigenous people who are getting involved in history, recording and analysis now is that there are a lot of them who are, let's look at this again from this perspective, from the perspective of what might have been our people to understand that based off of our cultural understanding. There's that. I do want to say, I feel like there would be, not because I have any super knowledge on anything, but in Mexica and Aztec cosmology, there are 13 heavens and 13 hells. That's a lot. That is a lot. That is a lot. <laughs> but it's fascinating. And this is something I want to kind of preface for later. I just have to ask, Dante's Inferno, are those 13... Did you say 13 levels or 13 different hells? Oh, my bad. There are nine levels of the underworld. And I really need to stress underworld, not hell, because hell is a very Christian concept. Very, agree. So in Aztec mythology, there are 13 heavens. And heaven is not like heaven the way that Christians think of it. It's just heavens are the above. We would be more akin to Norse mythology, where you have... Realm-ish. The realms. You have 13 realms that are associated with, it's funny because some of these levels of heavens, and I put that in quotes, aren't even very comfortable. And the nine levels of the underworld are definitely very different. But to what you were saying, are these sacrifices being done with a specific focus in mind and not necessarily just for clearing drought or just sacrificing to the god of war for a successful campaign? I have to imagine that there's, that do occur because there's a relation 
a realm of these heavens. Right. So I think, you know, what I find fascinating, to be quite honest, is that when we talk about these different cultures and they have several pantheons, what ends up happening is how we in the West become so fascinated by the god of war or the, the goddess of war, like whoever it might be. Those tend to be the most well-known. Because one of the things that you find in cosmology when you're looking at pantheons, whether it's one god or multiple gods, two gods, three gods, there's always someone for rebirth or spring because it's fascinating time people. And it doesn't matter where. You could be dead center equator and there's still someone about birth and rebirth and flowering and how whatever version it is. And I find that fascinating that that's one of the most, and you actually don't always find a god of war or goddess of war. And if you do, sometimes it's been with a bunch of other things, war, metal, wheat, whatever it is. To that, it's interesting because you're right, kind of a U.S. American, what people focus on, that whole god of war aspect. I'm going to refer back to this revitalization of descendants of Mesoamerican people, people who are tapping into the whole finding your roots thing. There is a focus on the, all the other gods of the Mesoamerican, of the Nahua Aztec pantheon. And so what you're totally right. When people in the United States are taught Aztec history, it is bellicose. It's war, it's sacrifice. But that's what we're focused on. And I think there's so much more eloquence and elegance in Aztec. Like, this is the other thing that I don't think that people really think about. You know, we talk about the Mayans and how cultured they were for the time period and what they did in their architects. And then we talk about the Incas. Now, the Incas are kind of on their own. Some people won't even really know who the Incas are, where they were located. But there's more mystique around the Incas than there is around the Mayans. With Mayans, I really get, it's so weird, but now that I've made the connection, it very much is like the Celts. Like there's something ancient that we can learn from the Mayans, just like there's something ancient that we can learn from the Celts. So then when you talk about the Aztecs, it's like there's nothing we can learn from the Aztecs because they were all about war, domination, and sacrifice. And yet, one, you just told us, that still blows my mind, it's a triple alliance. So there's something about that that's working, and that it actually took an outsider to bring this empire down. You're right, and it's so important to remember the name of the Tlaxcalan. The Spanish would not have been successful at bringing down the Aztec Triple Alliance, the Nahuatl, the Mexica, if not for the collaborative effort with the Tlaxcalans. Cortez landed on the eastern coast of Mexico with 80 men who didn't all survive the trek from where they landed. But my point is, there is a history. It wasn't just these outsiders. There was also those who were intimately familiar with the warfare practices, with the customs of those who were in power in Tecnitlan, which again is something that I would love to get into in another episode when we talk about La Noche Triste, because that is such an important, pivotal moment in Mesoamerican history. I say Mesoamerican because, yes, it didn't just affect the Nahua, it didn't just affect the Mexica, but that's the flowery war. Just to go back to it, summation, the understanding is that there is an, it's a war that is not considered aggressive. There's two not, not to be taken personally between these two different peoples, but also we need a question. What we know of the flowery war is filtered through multiple lenses. As Chad pointed out, there's no way of knowing 
what captives, if and when there were sacrificial victims that were captured during the Flowery Wars, what they were thinking, how they felt about these things. So there's always going to be that part of history, that idea of there's your truth, there's my truth, and then there's the truth. Always remember that that's in play. Always remember that when it comes to history, as it goes through time, it's going to be looked at again and again and again in different ways. It's very much like parables. A parable changes slightly according to what needs to be focused on at the time. There is an underlying message to most of them. Fables, if you're telling the story, you might emphasize a different area differently. But that is the Flowery Wars. And if you are interested in more information on that, we'll go ahead and have web link available in the description for this episode. But again, the article that I often cited in this conversation was Flowery War, in quotes, in Aztec History by Frederick Hicks. That's Frederick with no K at the end of it. And it's from the University of Louisville Journal. Thank you so much for listening. Next episode, I think we're going to try and hit historical sites and tie all of this together. Chad and I were discussing that. So stay tuned. We're super excited to talk a little bit more about the public history. This has been Drunk in Public History. This is Maria. And Chad. And thanks for listening. Bye. And drinking. Drink in in public. Oh, shoot. See, there you go. That answers everything you needed to know about this podcast. Drink in. Drink in 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 public history. Drink in. All right. Thanks. And we'll catch you next time. Bye.